Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we have our friend Carrie Malkovich back for part two. We had a wonderful opportunity last week to get to know Carrie and some of her personal journey and resilience and what that's looked like in her personal life. But today, Carrie, thanks for coming back. We want to hear more of the public side in your service as a member of your city city council. Yes, thank you. We did talk about personal resilience last time, and yet I think what some people don't understand is that all of us also have community resilience. Michelle, when when John died, we had friends and family who gathered around you to help him and and help you during his cancer journey. And then, of course, Jenny, when Brent passed away, that was a very public display of resilience with those of us who were his friends, heartbroken. Those of us in the community at large, heartbroken. And then your community of North Ogden losing their mayor and their leader. And so all of us have had opportunities to have community resilience with friends and, and family and sometimes our entire town. For me, as a member of the city council for the city of Woodland Hills, that came in 2018 when the Bald Mountain Pole Creek fires came and threatened our entire city. On that day, there was a lot of fear. I was actually in meetings in Salt Lake for the League of Cities and Towns when we got the call that our city couldn't be saved. The fires had actually started a week or so before, way up high on the mountain on federal land as a lightning strike. And they were watching it and didn't feel that there was a big threat to anyone at the time, but the wind shifted. And that was September 13th of 2018. And the wind shifted and we were called and said, get home. You need to evacuate your city now. It will not be saved. So Carrie, wait a second. Did they they evacuate just your neighborhood? Did they evacuate several residents in the neighborhood? Did they evacuate the entire city? Tell us a little bit more about the nature and location of Woodland Hills. I know, um, I kind of know where it is and I'm from Utah, but maybe tell us a little bit more about just the geographical makeup of your city. That's a great idea. Woodland Hills is a mountain community in the south part of Utah County. There were two fires that were actually burning, the Bald Mountain Fire and the Pole Creek Fire. Eventually, the two of them merged. When the fires, as I said, started, there were no threats to us. But as Mother Nature sometimes does and, and surprises us, we it was our entire town. Now, Oh, my goodness. And we were evacuated for two weeks. How many households um, is that? As, so we're a small town, so... We only have about between 1,500 and 2,000 people, but it is a mountain community with large uh, wooded lots, so it covers quite a big area. But that's still a lot of people Um, to say the entire community had to evacuate. mm -hmm. And there were other communities that were also threatened. Our neighboring city of Elk Ridge, parts of Salem, Mm -hmm. parts of Payson, parts of Spanish Forks. So all in all, there were over 7,000 people evacuated some for shorter periods of time, ours for a little bit longer. But it was at the time the largest single evacuation in Utah for a natural disaster. Oh, my goodness. And so it was something that was more than any of us could have really prepared for. Although our city, because we are a mountain community, for years we had been doing fire mitigation, as it would say. We have wildfire, wildland interface ordinances, which require our residents to do certain measures to help us mitigate fire. We had installed 
siren systems throughout the city. And the first Saturday of every month, we hold a technically a fire drill. We don't evacuate, but we put those sirens off every first Saturday of the month to make sure residents can hear the sirens, that they know that means that there's an emergency. And we've done several other things throughout the years. But on that day, that Thursday, when the sirens went off, our citizens knew that there was a problem. They knew that there was something happening that was beyond our control. Now, we also use a system called Everbridge. It's a countywide system. We have a great partnership with Utah County Emergency Management and Utah County Sheriff. And so we use a program called Everbridge that can send out a text, an email, and a phone call pretty well simultaneously. So as every resident in town received those three messages, plus the sirens went off, by the time we drove back from Salt Lake, The mayor and I just stood there. She waved as people went out. I was helping um, law enforcement get set up so that we could make sure that after everyone was out, we could um, lock down our city. One of the greatest fears, as you know, is when people leave their cities, they've seen on the news enough about vandalism or looting or other types of activities like that. And we wanted to make sure that our citizens knew if they left their homes, that they would be protected from a law enforcement standpoint. Now, we couldn't guarantee protection of the city from the fires, and they knew that. We went on pre-evacuation first, so they were able to load up some of their stuff. But once they were out, they were out. It was quite a fearful time for us. And one of the things I wanted to just kind of throw in here is, when do we start telling our story? Is it only after we've, quote, unquote, made it through? Or can we start in the middle of it? Can we let our journey unfold and play out and see what the lessons are in the middle? Because we don't always know the beginning from the end. And we sometimes do wait till the end to try to learn anything or, mm -hmm. or make sense of it. Yeah. And that's one thing that my personal background in public relations, and I'm over all the communication in this city, as well as emergency manager for my city, both part of my council duties. And so I was very active right away with especially social media posts. Most of the residents, that's where they wanted to get their information. And I found out later that a lot of the other communities were listening into our emergency communication. So I was putting things out as quickly and as often as I could to alleviate fears, to answer questions, Um, My background, as I said, in public relations, also, I was trained in community crisis communication. And so those things, although I hadn't had to practice them in recent years, they just kicked in. And the ability to communicate effectively uh, what was happening at every stage of the game, I think, was helpful. Again, this started out kind of slowly, not knowing what we were going to do. We had interlocal firemen who came to our rescue, and we lined our city with firefighters from all over the state. Uh, Although structural firefighters are different than wildland firefighters, so there's a technicality called a red card that means that they have been trained in wildland fires. When it was determined that it was the largest fire in the United States at the time as well, uh, we had federal incident commands come on scene. They brought about 2,000 firefighters total during that two weeks, hot shots, etc. that camped out. They come self-contained and, and they camped out in Payson and were on the mountain immediately. Every morning we had large gatherings of all interested parties at the Spanish Fork Fairgrounds where those incident commands would give us regular updates. So um, whether it was for the those who had livestock up on the mountain outside of our city boundaries, there were people from DNR there, there were people from water quality, there were people from the railroads, there were all the city officials, the state officials, the federal officials, all there communicating in a collaborative effort on what we could do. So Carrie, where so was, was part, where were all of, of these people? 
Because I'm picturing your beautiful community on this mountainside. Are you, are you at a yes. school building, a church building? Where physically? Or, I mean, you've got your hundreds, yes. thousands of people coming into a community that usually only has a few hundred people or a couple small thousand total. Where did everybody go yes. for these two weeks of crisis when you can't be in anyone's home? This was just part of the miracle. So the federal team that comes in with their self-contained firefighters, they were at in Payson. They set up a camp in Payson. They bring everything they need, food, showers, toilets, everything that those firefighters, federal firefighters could need was set up in Payson. Now, we have a church at the beginning of our city that we have an MOU with for disasters. And so we set up our local incident command right there at the church at the beginning of our city. Just for those who don't understand, a memo you would be a memorandum of understanding. Oh. So that, that's an agreement you have made that you're not going to take over their church all the time. But if an emergency came up, that was something already in place, right? You're not negotiating that yes. on the spot saying, hey, the mountain's on fire. Can we use your building? So it sounds like right. you had you had a lot of resources in place or at least a lot of preparation done being a mountain community, going through the drills, having those sirens, you've got this memorandum of understanding that lets you utilize this church because that's probably not the right time to start trying to call and reserve a venue when everyone's out of their homes. We're most... Of course, the city, that was our incident command. So that was only firefighters, the mayor and I, and a couple of other people right away. out of of their residents... All of the residents we sent down to the high school in Salem, Salem Hills High School, which is a community that's just down the road from us. The Red Cross came in immediately and set up, you know, mass care uh, shelter. They put up cots. They had food there. They had all sorts of things. So was school canceled? In addition to Red Cross, no, because it wasn't affecting that many people. So we took over their gyms. Just over the gyms. So they're still holding school with a couple thousand kids roaming the halls. And you've got, did most residents, sorry, I'm just trying to picture all of this, Carrie. Where did all the people sleep? Let me tell you all this. So this was part of the miracle. So although the students, because for students, it's better that they're not roaming around, right? The school district decided those kids had a safe place, whether it was elementary, junior high, or high school. There was a safe place for the kids to be. To be in class. We took over. In class, the okay. Red Cross then set up the shelter, and we sent everyone down there. We also were given a couple of parking lots for people who brought their trailers. Okay. So people with trailers so set up out. their trailers right away. Now, this is where the miracle happened. There were people from Payson and Salem and Spanish Fork who also showed up at the high school. And while people were coming and displaced and really frightened there were people who said you can come stay at my house i can take four i can take five i can take two i can take however many and as that happened spontaneously there were like three people left wow. to be at the shelter the red cross set up oh, the community truly came together we had veterinarians and people out on west mountain which is the far side of south side of Payson, who said, if you have large animals, bring them out to our farm. If you have small animals that don't have a place to go, bring them to our veterinary clinic. We had people who just spontaneously showed up and said, we are here for you. Okay, this is incredible. That happened over and over again in all of our needs. I had been really involved in the business community as well previously serving as president of the Chamber of Commerce for Spanish Fork in Salem. It was also the business community came together and said, Carrie, what do you need? Because we had these firefighters coming from all over. We ended up needing a donation center for those that were evacuated. So the school district gave us a room down at their district offices in Salem. We were able to let, when people said, what can we donate? Water, food, toiletries, whatever. There and all of the evacuees, It was like a little grocery store they could go through. We had members of the ecclesiastical community who came together to man that donation center. They were able to help people if there were certain needs that were 
not being met, we were able to tell our, our local businesses, we need more of this or not so much of that. That was a huge success. We also had a little store type thing set up at our the church or our emergency operations center for all those firefighters that came throughout the state. They could come. We had bags there. They could pick up their jerky or new socks or Red Bulls or water or whatever they needed. They could pack in their backpacks to take up on the mountain with them. And oh, so that's amazing. It was, I would get calls from people saying, hey, what can we bring up? And we even had one of our mutual friends, Hiram, his little boy, it was his birthday, and he recognized that he didn't want to spend his birthday money on himself. And he went and bought the special leather gloves that the firefighters needed and brought them up to the EOC and Aww. presented those to the fire chief and said, I just am thinking about you. So there were everybody from little kids to business owners who were bringing supplies on scene for us. We needed to feed all these firefighters. And like I said, the federal firefighters came self-contained. The 125 to 150 a day that came on site to help protect our city boundaries and help protect the structures needed food. And so I called up a bunch of our friends, including now Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson, who was our senator at the time, and several other of our really great friends that you would both know. And I said, I need help organizing food for these firefighters. It has to be commercially prepared food. And so they started calling all the restaurants around town, around really around Utah, Salt Lake and Utah County. We had food trucks up here, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We had others who just said, here, let me bring the food. We were able to feed for those entire two weeks, all of those 150 people, breakfast, lunch, and dinner from someone different every day. Wow. I've forgotten about that. I it remember one of no our... Cost, cost to us. I think it was Chad Pritchard with Fat Daddy's Pizzeria yes. at the time that said that he was going to do that and provide it. And I actually made a donation for that. And I'd forgotten all about that until That's you said incredible. that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, at, I actually contributed. You time, helped feed a firefighter. At, at that Probably time, at least he, one. Act, he actually had oregano's at that time. So he didn't have the pizza place yet. Oh, he okay. had oregano's and he brought the food from oregano's. We had all these food trucks who just said, we will be there. We will serve you. Now, as a side note, I kept a list of all those people. And during COVID, that first summer of COVID, I put something out to our residents and said, these are the restaurants I want you to go and get curbside pickup. I want you to go and support these businesses. And so each week we would focus on one or two of those who helped us during the fires to say, let's give back. And so, as a side note, that's what we tried to do. Carrie, that's amazing. We need to take a break, and we can't wait to continue this conversation. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. And we're back. That is so awesome. It's amazing to see how people come together spontaneously. Yeah. And you have a mixture of that. Yes, you had some plans in place and some emergency protocol, and that kind of clicked in automatically. But then it's that human reaction to, your house is on fire, mine's not. Come stay with me. Let, let me take you home with me. I can take four. I can take six. I'm picturing how beautiful the bonding would be. People who probably didn't know each yes. other became, I would imagine, pretty close to each other in that crisis. It's terrible, but these crisis situations provide opportunity for massive human connection, yeah. which isn't there when everything's hunky-dory, yeah. right? Right. So you're feeding everyone. You've got these right. firefighters. You've got the resources. Somehow it seems temporarily everything's working out, and yet your city's still on fire. So let's right. talk a little more about just the, <laughs> the agony. Yes, you're feeding well, people and you have a place to sleep for everyone, which is wonderful, 
But in the middle of this, at what point, tell us more about the fire and the journey and the grief and the worry. Yeah, well, and again, as I mentioned personally, for me, I'm a woman of faith. Well, I come from a community of faith as well. There were a lot of prayers being said. There was fasting going on. In fact, back to the food trucks, we had food trucks who, after one particular Sunday of fasting, said, we will feed the entire community. We will feed everyone at the high school. And the local grocery stores supplied all of the food that then were used by those food trucks. And we fed over 3,000 people that day. And that was helped organize by that same group of friends who just kind of spearheaded by by Senator Henderson and stepped right in. And so here we were. And like I said, every day we were meeting with the federal firefighters. The incident commanders would come to me and every day they would say, Carrie, we can't save your city. We're trying. And I said to them, we're praying for you. And he said, what? No one's ever said that. Why are you praying for us? And I said, because you're trained. This is what you do. We're praying for our city. We're praying for Mother Nature. We're praying for you and who you are and the skills you have. And the winds were still coming, 55 miles per hour plus. And one day, a group of teenagers called and said, hey, Mrs. Malkovich, can we come to the church, to the EOC and and say a little prayer right up there with you. And I said, sure. It was a day, like I said, the ash was falling on us like snow most of the days, but it kind of calmed down a little bit, but not really. And I said, sure, come up to the edge. We can all say a prayer together. And and uh, one of those girls said, obviously, adults have been praying that the wind would stop. And obviously, the Lord has a different plan because it's been a long time and the winds aren't stopping. So they said a prayer that basically said, if the winds can't stop, can you at least let them blow a different direction? And I just kind of smiled at that and thought, okay, well, the next day, the firefighter incident commander, he comes up and again, he's saying, Carrie, we don't know if your city can be saved. Every day he said the same thing. Behavioralists are saying this. But every day our city was saved. And I said, what is it? And he said, you know, as firefighters, we hate erratic wind. But every day as it gets closer, I mean, this is like just a few feet away from our city. He says, every day, the winds just miraculously just turn the other direction. And then a few hours later, they turn a different direction. And a few hours later, it's different direction. And your city's getting saved. And we were just in awe. And we just, we recognized the hand of God in that, that those erratic winds are what saved our city. And we could be prepared. We made decisions that really helped alleviate fears, but we couldn't guarantee anything. And so all of the school children, the elementary school teachers, were having their students write letters to the federal firefighters. And we compiled these books that we presented to them, just thanking them for their efforts. We had people who made posters that went down the road leading up to our city that just said, you know, you're a rock star and thank you for all you're doing so that they could see those as they were coming. We really recognized that if our city couldn't be saved, for some weird reason, we would be okay. At the end of that two weeks, we had 126,000 acres burned all around us. Wow. It was truly a miracle that happened. Now, we... Are still healing from the pain, though, because so there's PTSD me, when we still... So sorry, just yeah. tell me, at the end of the two weeks, were there no homes in Woodland Hills burned? There were no homes destroyed at all anywhere in on any the fire. Of the city there was a couple of outbuyers, nothing, and wow. any, a few outbuildings here and there. But overall, it was a miracle. And just so I understand what at the end of the 2 weeks did the winds just die down enough that they got the fire contained? What finally when could you go home? When could everyone finally go home? Was it at the end of that 2 weeks it was deemed safe to go back? Well, that's another another aspect of, of disaster <laughs> is that you don't know when it's going to be okay. Those federal yeah. firefighters were the only ones who could give us permission. To go ahead. Now, as those fires started dying out those on that federal level those hot shots they go out they actually try to you always hear on the news it's 
1% contained, 2% contained, whatever, right? That doesn't mean the fire's out. It means that it hasn't burned enough around that there's no more fuel for it to burn. To keep going. And so they set up containment areas around the fire perimeter to keep it within that acreage that it had grown to. Okay. And then as the wind died down, then we were able to use air support, not just the hand crews on the ground, but air support. Which wouldn't have been um, effective with the wind. They right? couldn't. They yeah, were too windy. Can't. They, they weren't sense. allowed to get up. And so they actually got up there with some water and some fire retardant. The fire retardant can actually start putting the fire out. The water just kind of helps make that containment area. Now, just to let you know how dry it was, we're still in the drought, right? We're still told this is part of the 20-year drought. If you go and buy a 2 by 4 at Home Depot, it's about 12% moisture content. The moisture content on the trees above us were at three percent. Oh wow! So the, the fire whole would hit them, and they would fire ex- ready. They would explode. Yeah. The fire, the trees, we could hear them literally explode because on the they mountain. were so dry. Because they were so dry. Um, so as it started having uh, more containment, and the federal firefighters thought that we were at a place that we could what is called repopulate, we did so. Okay. With the caveat that if the winds changed again or picked up, we would evacuate again. again. And did you ever so have to evacuate again? we kept everybody on that. Now, kind of. Right kind after of. the fires, <laughs> after we were repopulated, there was a hurricane off the coast of Baja, California, that was headed our direction. And with... Uh, a fresh burn scar, you have threats of potential mudslide and debris float. Yeah. That cell was headed directly to us. And so at the time, we were like, okay, what can we do? We were repopulated. A lot of people were so tired. Our elected officials had left town except for me and, and one other gentleman. And it was determined we needed to fill sandbags and fill them fast. We were able to get volunteers within our city, within the county, county emergency management, and others, we were able to get, I think it was about 60,000 sandbags filled in a day and a half. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Which was another miracle and placed when the governor called and said, what do we need to do? And we said, we need something to help divert water. Well, UDOT just happened to have some Jersey barriers, which are used in road construction and to keep people away. So those cement barriers that sometimes are down the middle of the right. freeway or on K-rails. the K-rails. The Aren't they called K-rails? Yep, they had them. Yep. They had them up Spanish Fork Canyon. Well, because it was now it's not only a national disaster, but it was declared a state disaster, the National Guard was called in. And so National Guard was able to go and get those barriers, bring them in and place them where, where we thought was the best way to divert the water if it really? and the debris if it came down so the So you hill. have those big so barriers spent, and sandbags. And mm-hmm. so we actually lined our park with those Jersey barriers and then also made channels with them from the area of the burn scar so that most of the mud and debris flow would go into our park. Then we had residents be placing sandbags around their property. And this all had to happen before this big storm came. Like I said, maybe two to three days max. That was all that we had the notice of. Wow. Um, Again, it's the perfect storm because what happens with debris flow and, and mudslides is that you have warm, warm rains. You have heavy rains that come down. There's a formula for it. It has to be so much rain in a 20 minute period at a certain temperature landing on that dirt that is now unstable to have a debris flow. We were 100% sure we were going to have a debris flow. So we evacuated the homes that were right where that would come down the hill. We evacuated those homes for a second time. But again, our city stepped up with a lot of prayers. We had people from National Weather on scene. We had our firefighters on scene. We had people from the state here on scene to say, what are we going to do if this happens? It hits Payson and starts flooding Payson. Prayers are being said. The storm divided and went 
around us. One part of it went on the backside of us. The other came through Salem Spanish Fork and actually flooded Provo Orem quite extensively, but missed us. Such a miracle. Another miracle that happened here. And so... And who knows what could have happened, but that planning, and, and I do remember you did take me up to see those K-Rail barriers and sandbags up through the park area, and it's yes. extensive. You know, when you're talking about yeah. it, you're, it's hard to kind of visualize, but it was quite extensive and quite over a large area. You're trying to save an entire mountain. Yeah. And it, so one of the things I really want to focus on is in resilience in terms of a city, right? Because... There's our city structure. Your city doesn't stop working because you're in a disaster or because you're evacuated. You still have to give out building permits and pay bills and pay your employees, and you still have to do all of those things, but remotely. You have that structure of governance that has to have take place. So we had what would be called a whole community response. We had the organized volunteers like Red Cross and Team Rubicon who helped us. You have those spontaneous volunteers that bring supplies and help our citizens find a place to live. We had those who were in animal control that could take those large and small animals. We had the hospitals on standby. We had our our Utah County sheriffs here to make sure that things were running smoothly from a law enforcement perspective. There were so many different individuals that came together to assist us in that whole community response. And that's an important aspect in resilience because you cannot do this alone. Absolutely. Um, In your fear, in your sorrow, in your hope, and then in the miracles that everyone coming together really produces that preparation. Then you add faith on top of that and the miracles are there. Unbelievable. That's such, it's so awesome to see people come together and work so hard. There's so many aspects and different pieces of this and none of it can come together on its own and no one person can do it. You know, it's so so true. And that's really, although I had a large part in it because I'm the public information officer for the city. So when the news crews came, I was the one interviewed. Um, When all that communication that went out through social media, especially, I was in charge of that. All the meetings to to have with these collaboration partners that I had every day. The coordinating. With, as emergency manager, working with the firefighters and working with the county to make sure things were in place. The part that is is interesting to me is, Sometimes your capacity to do things doesn't always equal your ability to do things. And I know that sounds sort of weird, but you come into a situation like this. I never did get to go home and evacuate my own home. I didn't get to come home and pack. I came right from Salt Lake with my clothes from a conference in my bag. I didn't have clothes to sit around in the fire. Luckily, someone brought these things to wear. I sat up. I slept in the church on the floor in a, with a blanket for those two weeks so that I could be there 24 hours and be where I was needed. But the capacity that I had and others to come into a situation like this, if you had to think, can I do this? You would probably say, no. No, no. <laughs> of course not. No. <laughs> but, but when you're thrown into it, just like with our own personal resilience, when you're thrown into a situation the training that you've had before, that ability to do things starts picking up. And you go into a different mode when you're trying to do things for so many other people. Absolutely. Um, You're not thinking about yourself. You're looking at it and you're saying, um, what have I prepared for? What have I practiced? And how hard can I work to make this better? Again, not being able to say I can protect the city or we as a collective whole community response can save our city. But what can we do and how hard can we work to make sure that you know that we've done everything in our power to make it through this disaster? And not just during the fires, but then that post-fire disaster of potential flooding. And then years later, I've been project manager for continued 
fire mitigation projects with FEMA and NRCS on a federal level. And so there are a lot of things that go in. The empathy that you get for others takes place. I help cities all over our state who contact me and ask for guidance and help in post-disaster. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. We're back. So, uh, Carrie, what an amazing opportunity. Uh, first of all, there was the organization in place and there was a lot of things taking going on with coordinating all of these different pieces. And that in itself was just a, a massive amount of work. But the real miracle came from the weather patterns, the changing of the wind, the changing of the storm. Things could have been so much worse. Now, the interesting yes. thing is, is we are heading towards an election, but we don't really, I don't think sometimes give credit or credence to our elected officials for the hard work and choices that have to be made. And sometimes it's really easy to demonize those that are elected, but you can see <laughs> even somebody who's on a city council can be right. given an awful lot of responsibility and a lot of weight in a moment of a crisis, which you can never really plan for. Yeah, no matter how many drills you've done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I love... Well, and, and that's one thing as a council, you know, we were all given different responsibilities. Some were at the evacuation centers and some were... One of our councilmen is a firefighter, so he was up on the mountain. The mayor and I just... She and I just happened to be the ones that were on the ground at the emergency center, right? Our EOC. And so... Again, as a city, building trust before this happened. Our residents know who we are, and although we're not perfect, we had built up enough of a trust with them personally that when we said you need to evacuate, they listened. The county and the state were so surprised that we were able to get everyone evacuated so quickly because most of the times in a city, People think that there's something else going on and I'm not going to evacuate because of whatever the reason is or a conspiracy theory or whatever. Or the just fact that enough. The, some people just don't want to go. They're like, I'll die with my I'd house, which is it. so ridiculous. Yep. But yep. my mom and dad have been through this three times. You you just walked me through uh, figuring out, like trying to figure out the fire maps and figuring out what that meant and is their home really at risk? All those things, which I really appreciate you doing that with me. It was such a stressful time. But my dad has a neighbor (laughs) in his neighborhood that every time they won't evacuate. Now, this last time they did. He, He finally, I don't know if it was the wife that finally said, let's go or what, but finally they did evacuate. You do have those people. And the sad thing about that is not only are they at risk, but they end up putting other people that are in trying to harm's save way that are yeah. trying to save them. It's like, we can't really do our job or protect yeah. your structure or if you don't do, listen, if you don't listen, like you're actually creating a level of risk for everybody else when you do that. What I love about stories like this, right. Carrie, is hearing how, you know, you and the mayor happen to be there. You, you race back, you jump in the moment. You didn't hem and haw over who's going to do this or who's going to do that. But then for the next couple of weeks, you start to see the amazing resilience, the resilient capacity of the human soul and of human beings collectively. And yeah. I've seen this. Yeah. We we haven't had a fire in our community, but we had a horrible windstorm and it caused all the damage and it brought the people together. And pretty soon strangers are best friends and they're helping and, and men with chainsaws are driving around the cities and we're feeding all the people. So I've on a small scale kind of tapped into what you shared in our own city. But I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. historically speaking, there is a certain resilience that kicks into high gear when you kind of have no other choice. Mm -hmm. And and maybe some people sit back and completely go into shock and and become non-functional and and that's that. But it sounds like people like you and the mayor and these people involved, that intrinsic ability to rise above the storm, to be steady, to try to find some calm – to not make false promises that mm-hmm. you weren't sure you could keep, but to provide 
confidence and peace of mind to the degree you could. To me, that's so worth celebrating. Mm-hmm. Like, how miraculous is that? Yeah. That the human being, in the face of all kinds of what appears to be imminent danger, can say, "Hey, you guys, we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Here's what yeah. we're going to do. You're going to help me. I'm going to help you." And I love what you said, Carrie, before the break. This collective community response that none of us the can whole do this alone. Response is what it's called. Yeah. None the of whole us whole could do this response alone. Is what it's called. That's yep, amazing. We can't. And, and I think that's what I was talking about is a lot of your podcast is about personal resilience, but we've all experienced community resilience on some level, whether yeah. it's with family or friends or with our whole town, right? And, and I think part of it is having that capacity to open our hearts, open our hands, work hard to bring people together. And a lot of times in our trauma or in our sorrow, we forget to look for these troubling periods as an opportunity to learn, to learn not only about ourselves, but our, our fellow friends, family, who was ever around us at the time, those abilities to, to come together and expand our, our spiritual knowledge, our mental knowledge, and our even academic knowledge. There's things that I didn't know about fires prior to this that I was learning on the spot, Right. There were things that, that I saw that, that spiritual knowledge of people just in unrelentless faith that said, we are going to be okay. A lot of times I've heard in the past that before you can have wisdom, you have to have sorrow. And there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And we come out of our trauma, our trials, our challenges, what do we have when we learn from them? We have wisdom. We have empathy. We have a new resolve to be better. We have a renewed faith. And one of the things that happened in our community, three months from the day, there was a different fire. Well, three months from the day is when we responded. But a few weeks after we were repopulated, there was another large fire that took over as being the number one fire in the nation. And it happened to be in a town called Paradise, California. Their town was not saved. We prayed for them. We hoped for something better. And we don't know why we were saved and they weren't. And it was really rough on our citizens. We as a city council realized that their city still had to pay their bills and do all the things that have to happen in their city to keep it working. And so our community decided to have a concert, a benefit concert at the high school. And we invited all the surrounding towns to come. And one of our residents is quite well known in her uh, as a recording artist. And she brought a lot of her friends together and came. And we just asked for donations. And we ended up, and that concert was three months from the day of our fires, the day that our fires started And we came together with gratitude and with compassion and with empathy and with our pocketbooks open. And we raised, I think, fifty or $60,000 that night. Wow. And our mayor then, after the fires were out in paradise, our mayor was able to fly back there and give their mayor that check from our city to their city. How beautiful. Recognizing that you might have federal or state assistance But there are things that happen that don't qualify for assistance that you still need to do. You still need to function as a city. And that, to me, was another added miracle and blessing, that you don't just get through something, but that you remember it with a heart of gratitude, even if it was tough, even if the outcome wasn't what you wanted it to be. But you look at that opportunity to learn and to grow and to become better. I love that you mentioned, you know, your city's fire could have very easily gone the way that Paradise's did. Mm-hmm. And and we've we've interviewed my sister in law, Brittany Taylor, her she's from Paradise. Her childhood home burned down to she sent me a picture. The only thing left was the concrete steps up to the front porch. 
Everything wow. gone. The entire city gone. Yeah. Neighborhoods gone. Shops yeah. gone. Doctor's offices gone. And for your city to have that kind of empathy and compassion and then do something about it. Carrie, that's so beautiful. And it I think is. there is a certain type of motivation and bonding that comes through crisis. Not that any of us would wish crisis upon ourselves or upon someone else, but there is something about enduring something difficult together that creates not only a resilience, but a, a strength that almost is hard to find words for. Absolutely. To where, where you, those of you residents that live through this together, decades will pass. Your children and your grandchildren will come. You'll still remember those moments of being truly forged in the fire mm-hmm. um, of that crisis. And I think that's what resilience is all about. We're, we're in a fire all the time, all of us. There's mm-hmm. some degree of fire burning in or around us at, at any given moment, it seems. How do we respond? Do we reach out? Does our training yeah. kick in? Do we prepare in the moments that are a little more calm so we, the training can kick in? Do we rely on other people? Do we look for the blessings? Do we have the gratitude and that type of perspective to see the good even in the bad? And it sounds like everything you've shared has all of that and so much more in this beautiful small town community in the mountains. Absolutely. Carrie. Well, and again, it's also what we started with, right? When do you tell your story? Only after you've made it through or can you tell it in the middle? Can you see your lessons? Can you see the gratitude when you're in the middle of it? And can you, can you recognize your capacity then to get to what you would think is the other side. Absolutely. And who knows how many opportunities you will continue to have, Carrie, to help other people through their own difficult moments. Thank you for being the type of person that has the personal resilience to be able to go through the whole community response, even when it's not your own community. I love hearing you talk about how your experience has now made you an invaluable resource to other cities going through crises around the country. Thank you for that. And in weighing in with our federal government and how yeah. they've responded to crisis response. Yeah. Really quick before we go, and we've got to do this quick because we're, we've run out of time, but yes. um, there still is a burn scar. Yes. What is going on? There's still and, a burn scar. Mm-hmm. What so, is the process so I, of... I then became the liaison between my city, the county, the state, and the federal government. And so I did apply for grant money from the state and for federal assistance. The county is helping us on some of that in terms of getting it organized. We did one post-fire basin and some channel work for immediate watershed protection. We are now in the process with NCRS, I guess is what the acronym is, federal government has a lot of them, um, to do another basin that would help with potential mud flow. When the burn scars are at such magnitude, you actually have about up to 15 years that you could have an incident. We have not had anything yet, but it doesn't mean that it will not come. The mountain has begun to reseed itself, and so there is a little bit of erosion control going on there. But, yes, we are always on edge when the storms hit and when the rains fall and when the snow melts. And just the long-term effect. And I think that's another point to keep in mind when we're trying to be resilient in life. Sometimes you make it through the the heart of the storm and you take a deep breath and you kind of regroup. And then you have to remember you're probably going to be facing the effects of this for a long time. And that's true with a lot of us in the things we go through. Even if we go through them with grace and strength and resilience, we will still be impacted for years to come and and maybe the rest of our lives. And that's true physically in this case. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then one, one, one quick other thing is um, I knew that there was a lack of funding on both the federal and the state level for, for wildfires and other disasters. And so one of the things that I have done and helped with our legislation is we've passed one piece of legislation to help local municipalities in Utah every year. We have another one coming up this year that will help with funding. I've worked with both Senator Romney Senator Lee, and at the time, my congressman, uh, John Curtis, to have uh, different pieces of legislation passed through Congress to help cities all over the nation. So as I have tried to say, what are the lessons we've learned and how can we help others? That's one avenue that I've tried to use my influence and some of my contacts to make sure that we are paying it forward with additional knowledge, additional a funding stream so that not everyone has to go through the same thing. 
Yeah. Incredible. Thank you for that, Carrie. You are such a gift to the people of Woodland Hills in Utah County, this state, and even this great nation. We love you. I know Michelle and I both just feel so grateful we get to call you our friend and learn from you and the wonderful and difficult times you have had in your personal and professional life. So thank you for being so willing to share and inspire the rest of us. Thank you so much. You. For, yes. And thank you so much for coming on. I love giving people an opportunity, especially in public office, to share about the other side, the actual rolling up the sleeves and getting the work done, because I think it's easy to attack those that serve us for any little small to vilify and to vilify them. But there's a lot of work, time, sacrifice and efforts. And oftentimes these are for little or no pay at all. And so we really, we need to kind of rethink maybe sometimes the way we approach our elected officials. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to subscribe for free to this podcast, share it with a friend. And also if you have somebody or you yourself have a story you'd love to share, we'd love to be able to provide that platform. You can reach us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And uh, feel free to direct message us. You can send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. If you know somebody who has a real story or you yourself and you'd like to share it on our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us directly, direct message at Facebook or Instagram. Thank you to our amazing producer, Kellyanne Halverson. And remember, whatever you do today, please remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are dealing with in their lives. Have a good day, everybody. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.